Well, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Joel. And as you're turning there, let me remind you of what happened on December 26, 2004. The earth's tectonic plates violently ruptured several miles under the Indian Ocean off the northwestern tip of Indonesia, triggering a magnitude 9.0 earthquake, one of the largest uh, that's ever been recorded. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, the the earthquake uh, was estimated to have released the energy of 23,000 Hiroshima-type atomic bombs which unleashed a series of killer waves, if you remember, that traveled across the ocean with the sound and the speed of a jet airliner. And within hours, tsunamis slammed into the the coastlines of 11 countries, snatching people out to sea, uh, drowning others in their homes or on the beaches, and demolishing property from Africa all the way to Thailand. I was watching videos uh, today just reminding myself of the the horror of that day where there were tourists, of course, Thailand and Indonesia is a, a big tourist spot, and, and they were there on the beach, and they all were watching the tide go out very quickly, and they were like, what is happening? And they didn't realize what was happening was the water was getting sucked out, right, off the beaches uh, to... In, in preparation for this huge tsunami. And so they were just kind of standing there, innocently gawking out onto the ocean, wondering what was going to happen. And by the time they figured it out, it was too late. And they got washed away. They say that somewhere between 250,000 or, or even up to 300,000 people uh, died or went missing, and millions were displaced from their homes. I would be the first to say that this was the most devastating natural disaster that I have ever witnessed, I would even say probably in modern times. And, and this, this unprecedented, catastrophic loss of life, I mean, to, 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 we hear of thousands of people dying, a, a thousand here or 3,000 here, but to have 300,000 people die is just beyond our ability to comprehend. But having said that, I would say this, that that tsunami that occurred 10 years ago was just a preview of what is to come someday when the Lord returns to judge the earth because of our sin. And over and over again in God's word, he promised that there would come a day when he will punish or or unleash his wrath, I should say, unleash his wrath on mankind as a result of our sinful rebellion against him. And that day of judgment is referred to as the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And this term is, is uh, used multiple times in, in both the Old and New Testaments. And, and generally speaking, the, the day of the Lord is not just one specific time period, but really any time that God intervenes in time and space to judge sin. And, and there's, there's multiple times in the scriptures where uh, an event, a historical event, right, was referred to as the day of the Lord. And so specifically, the day of the Lord refers to uh, a particular historical event, but ultimately it refers to that eschatological event, in other words, end time event, 
when God will pour out his wrath on the world during the great tribulation and when he will send his son Jesus Christ to destroy his enemies and restore his people and set up his earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. That is what the Bible refers to as the day of the Lord. And uh, this important concept of the day of the Lord is, in, is introduced to us by none other than Joel, um, one of the minor prophets. And here is just a, one example that minor doesn't mean not as important, right? Because this is an extremely important concept, extremely significant concept for us as Christians, and it's introduced to us in this prophecy that we're going to look at tonight, uh, the book of Joel. And again, the reason why they're called minor prophets is simply because they're shorter or smaller than the other prophetic books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, right? And then you throw Lamentations in there, Jeremiah's Lamentations. Those are the major prophets because they're so long, they're so big, right, and lengthy. And, and these minor prophets are, are just short. They're just little, uh, little books. Well, we, we, we said that last week, because they were so little, uh, to ensure that none of them would get lost um, in the shuffle, um, before the time of Christ, these uh, prophecies were uh, grouped together in the Hebrew Bible to make one scroll, and it was simply called, remember, the Twelve. The 12. So that's how we got the big 12 there, right? Because that's what these, these, these minor prophets were referred to as simply the 12. And so um, last week we started this series um, looking at the, the 12 minor prophets, which is probably the most neglected and least understood portions of the Word of God. And, and I told you my goal is to simply give you an overview of each book of the minor prophets or in the minor prophets that, that will hopefully inspire you to go deeper in, in your own personal study. And maybe it might lead me uh, in time to do a more in-depth series of one or more of these like I, like I already have with the book of Hosea and the, and the book of Jonah. But um, because even in the, the reason, you say, well, why would you spend time in, in the minor prophets? I mean, you know, well, because I believe that even though they were written like 3,000 years ago, right, uh, this obscure section of Scripture contains some timeless, life-changing truths that every believer needs to know and needs to apply to their lives. It matters to you, right? Or it should matter to you who Gomer is. That should matter to you. It should matter to you who Obadiah is or who Zephaniah is, right? Or who, who Edom uh, was uh, and, and who the Ninevites were. You need to know these things. Why? Because these minor prophets are, are simply the written records of, of, of these men that God handpicked to, to both confront and also to console several groups of people, the, the northern tribe of Israel or the northern um, uh, country, if you will, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, along with some surrounding Gentile nations uh, like Assyria and Edom. Uh, and this was all being played out for us during the, 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 the Assyrian, the Babylonian, and Medo-Persian empires, which spanned some 400 years, about 800 to 400 B.C. And so we said last week uh, that there was really three categories of prophets. There was the pre-exilic prophets, right? There was the exilic prophets, and there was the post-exilic prophets. In other words, some of the prophets, uh, their messages were before the exile, before 
Judah or before Israel was taken away into exile by Assyria and never returned. Some, uh, some were before uh, the exile of Judah to Babylon, right? Some, too, Ezekiel and Daniel, were during the time that the nation of Judah was in Babylon itself. And then there were several others that were written after they came back, right, from exile. Um, and that was, of course, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Those were written uh, all about the restoration of the temple um, and God's people in, in, the, in the homeland. And so you got a handout last week. If you didn't get one tonight, uh, there's one on the back table. This kind of gives you an overview, kind of a big picture of, of uh, the, chronolo- or the, or the canonical order, basically how these prophets are, are laid out in Scripture uh, and also the more chronological order. Um, just to see kind of how they, how they uh, flow chronologically. So we're just going to follow the, the order that they come in Scripture, but I think it's important that you kind of keep in mind that these are not necessarily in chronological order here in, in our Bibles. So tonight, we're going to tackle the book of Joel. And it's small enough that we, we should be able to pretty much walk through the entire thing verse by verse. Now, I won't comment on every verse, but I might just read chunks of of verses and then comment on them. But let's just begin in verse 1, and it says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Now, believe it or not, that is all we know uh, for sure about Joel. Okay, we know that there was a guy named Joel, a prophet named Joel, and his dad was named Pethuel. We, we can't even pinpoint the exact time in which he lived and ministered. Some, some scholars believe that it was pre-exile. Others believe it was post-exile. Um, and it's really hard to pinpoint exactly uh, when he lived and ministered. Um, but at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter because the, the message uh, that he gives here is impossible to miss. And as I mentioned already, Joel is the first prophet to to mention and develop this critical theme of the day of the Lord. In fact, that is the theme of the entire book is the day of the Lord. And that's why I simply titled that uh, Joel's book is is, is about God's ultimate day. Notice um, six times he mentions the day of the Lord. And this kind of tips us off that this is what he's all about. He's writing all about here. Chapter 1, verse 15 Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Chapter 2, verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains. So there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor there be again after it to the years of many generations. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Verse 31. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord, before the day, the awesome, great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Chapter 3, verse 14. 
multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And then lastly, verse 18, and in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. So all that to say, Joel's basically, if I could just give you a, an overview or a simple summary of the book, okay, before we get into it, Joel, we're going to see how Joel described a locust invasion that destroyed the land of Judah to illustrate how the land would be invaded by a fearsome army that would make the locusts seem mild in comparison. And so in the process, he appealed to the people of Judah to repent of their sin to, to avoid far greater judgment that was to come in the future day of the Lord. And Joel promised that God's judgment would be followed by Israel's restoration. And the promise of, of blessing was, was partially fulfilled, as we're going to see on the day of Pentecost, and will be ultimately fulfilled on the day when Christ returns. And so that's just a, a simple overview of what we're going to see here in the book of Joel. If we were to uh, just put a title, if you will, on this, or a, uh, I guess just an outline, you could just call it Devastation and Deliverance. Devastation and Deliverance. And, and chapter 1 all the way to chapter 2, verse 17, is all about mourning over present devastation. Mourning over present devastation. And then from chapter 2, verse 18, all the way to the end, chapter 3, verse 21, is rejoicing over future deliverance. And so this is all about, we're going to see, see a contrast here tonight between devastation and, and deliverance. And so let's begin again in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all the inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? In other words, what I'm about to describe to you was unprecedented. Nothing like this had ever happened before. No one had ever experienced anything like this Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell your sons and their sons the next generation. And here it is. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. And so you've got these four waves of this locust infestation. There's a show on TV, right? On, uh, I don't remember what show it is but, or what station it is, but it's in, called Infestation, right? And it's all these creepy things about that infest your house or your yard or whatever. Well, this is a locust infestation. And one wave after another, after another, after another came in and absolutely devastated uh, the crops uh, in, in Judah. And notice he says, Awake drunkards and weep and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. In other words, you winos, you should mourn. Because why? You can't get your wine anymore because all the grapes are destroyed. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are like the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my wine vine a waste, and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. And so he's just describing here how the entire land was completely devastated by this, by this plague of locusts. And, and uh, for an agrarian culture... Like the Israelites, there was nothing worse that could happen than have your 
crops completely destroyed. I mean, the entire nation literally ground to a halt. Everyone was impacted. Notice how he lists certain people here in starting in verse 8. Wail like a virgin, girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. In other words, the, 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 there, there's, no, there's nothing to bring uh, offerings uh, with any longer. Uh, the field is ruined. The land mourns for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up Fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up and the fig tree fails. The pomegranate, the palm also, the apple tree, all the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. So he's talking to the priests, he's talking to the farmers, he's talking to the vineyard, the vine dressers, and he's saying that, that, that all of you uh, should, should be mourning. because of what these locusts have done. Well, one of, the, one of the prevailing themes throughout the minor prophets is the sovereignty of God. And I think this is important to understand that God is sovereign over grasshoppers and locusts, right? He controls the locusts. Um, and really, this was not so much a natural disaster as it was a supernatural disaster. And the reason why I say that is because um, God sent the locusts to punish the nation of Judah for abandoning their relationship with him. You say, how do you know that? Well, you remember from the beginning of the Old Testament that, that uh, when God delivered the people of Israel from uh, slavery to Egypt, he led them to the promised land, right? A land flowing with milk and honey. And God promised that as long as they obeyed him, he would bless the land and he would cause it to flourish. But if they disobeyed, what would he do? Would he curse them or would he curse the land? He would curse the land. And by cursing the land, he was cursing them. And so anytime the land wasn't producing, it was to serve as a reminder that God was judging or, or disciplining them for their disobedience. Uh, look back quickly at Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11, because you can't understand uh, Israel if you don't understand the connection between their land, right, and, and, and God. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 10. God says, for the land into which you are entering to possess it, is not like the land of Egypt from which you came, where you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden. But the land into which you are about to cross to possess it is a land of hills and valleys, drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning even to the end of the earth. In other words, it's the most special piece of property on planet earth, okay? And I'm giving it to you as a gift, it shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then 
that he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. He will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them, or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. And then maybe a passage you might be more familiar with, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, uh, in, in the prayer that, that Solomon prayed to dedicate the temple, uh, he had asked the Lord that, that if, uh, if, if the heavens, if we ever disobey you, right, and the heavens close up and, and, and the locusts come, um, would, and if we repent and we cry out to you, would you heal our land? That was part of his, his dedicatory prayer. And then here in Second Chronicles 7, we have God's answer, verse 12. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land... Notice that, the sovereignty of God, I command the locusts to devour land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name, what? Humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked way, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin. And notice he doesn't just say, and forgive their sin, but also, what? Heal their land. You see the connection? You can't understand God's relationship with Israel apart from the land of Israel, the promised land. And again, since their entire economy was based on agriculture, nothing would get their attention quicker and motivate them to turn back to the Lord than by destroying their crops. And, and, and I just want to say this, that, that in, in many ways this was a disciplinary act by God upon His children Israel. Do you agree with that? And so we have to grapple with the New Testament principle in Hebrews chapter 12, right? That if we are God's children, God will sometimes do what to us? He'll discipline us, right? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there among his father, is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, I I read that because I think there's some confusion in the church today about whether or not God punishes us for our sin. Um, Maybe that's why the word discipline is more a better term, right? Because we know that Christ took the punishment for our sin on the cross, right? 
so that we will never have to experience God's wrath for our sin. I know we all agree that with that. However, that doesn't mean that God still doesn't punish us as his children when we sin. Listen, when, when my kids sin, I don't just say, isn't it wonderful, kids, that Jesus died on the cross for your sin? And, and, and just let them go their happy way. No, I, I, I do something about it, right? I talk to them about the gospel and say, hey, this is why Jesus had to die, right? And we're grateful that, that God covers our sins on the cross. But guess what? You deserve to be punished, right? And you need to be disciplined. And we're not spanking our kids anymore. They're too old for that. But whether whatever age they are, right, they need to have some consequences. They need to experience consequences for their sinful actions, their sinful choices. And so I just know it makes some Christians uncomfortable, it seems, today to say that, listen, you better, you know, if you disobey the Lord, you will be punished. You will be disciplined. And I'm not talking about eternal punishment. You will never, right, you are no longer under condemnation for your sin. You will never be eternally punished for your sin. That was covered by the blood of Christ on the cross. But that doesn't mean along the way, right, that we're going to, we get off scot-free, right, from any kind of consequences or disciplinary action when we disobey the Lord. And, and, and I think the nation of Israel is a good example. These were his people, right, who he was ultimately going to restore. He was going to uh, come back and get them, and we're going to see that in, in the end here, uh, how this all thing plays itself out. But in the meantime, right, when they disobeyed, he punished them, he disciplined them. And so we need to kind of keep that in balance in, in our Christian lives. We, I, I know it's not like we don't want to, you know, how do, how do we deal with the fact that the punishment is, is complete at the cross, right? But there is still some ongoing discipline that will go on in our lives. There's a balance, there's a tension there, right, in the scriptures. Notice verse 13, um, to make matters worse, the land was devastated by either some kind of wildfire or, or a severe drought. Let me read down through verse 20, and you'll see what I mean. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. In other words, nobody's bringing anything to the house of the Lord for you to minister to them with because there's nothing to bring. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off from before your eyes, gladness and joy from the house of your God? The seeds shrivel under their clods, the storehouses are desolate, the barns are torn down, for the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan, even the cows and even the herds, the cattle, right? They're wandering aimlessly because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. So this is affecting even the animals, the livestock, are suffering because of, of, of Judah's sin. To you, O Lord, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So this fire could be a literal fire, right? A wildfire of some sort that came, and, or maybe it's just a severe drought that just, just everything's just burnt to a crisp, right? 
And so you've got this, this twin tragedy of this locust infestation, and then maybe right after that came this wildfire or this drought coupled with the, the locust thing, and you, these guys were in bad shape. And yet this was merely a, a foreshadowing of the devastation that would be inflicted on them by a future-like, or, or I should say a, a locust-like uh, military invasion. They would just be like uh, an army coming like a, a swarm of locusts and, and just devastating uh, the, the country. And that was what was going to happen if the people didn't repent, if they didn't turn from their sinful ways and return to the Lord. And that's why he's telling them that they should mourn and wail and, and, and put on sackcloth. That was the sign of repentance, right? And notice how he transitions from this... this um, supernatural disaster, as we'll call it, right, uh, of the locust in, in chapter 1 uh, to the coming judgment of God uh, with this enemy nation, this enemy army that was going to come and destroy them. Notice verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness as the dawn is spread over the mountains. So there was a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses, so they run with a noise as of chariots. They leap on the tops of mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle before them. The people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers, and they march in line, nor do they deviate from their past. They do not crowd each other. They march every, everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great for strong as he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is great indeed and very awesome and who can endure it? And so here you have this, again, locust-like invasion, man. They're just everywhere, right? This, this army that comes. And so uh, one commentator said it this way, Joel urged his people to consider the locust ravenous fury and repent to avoid even worse judgment. For God devastates his people not to drive them away, but to draw them near. That's precious, isn't it? God devastates his people not to drive them away, but to draw them near. He brings us to nothing so that we will run to him who is everything, and through our repentance, he can turn famine into feast. That was ultimately what was motivating God, right here. It wasn't, he doesn't just discipline us, right, because he likes it, and it's fun, right? No, God finds no pleasure, right, in, in that discipline process, I don't know about you as a parent, I don't find any pleasure in, in, in when I was spanking my kids when they were little. That was not fun. Um, but I was doing it because I love them and I want them to, right, honor the Lord and honor us and, and, and all that. 
And so he's, he's really ultimately gunning for repentance. That was the method to his madness here is he wanted them to repent. Notice verse, verse 12. Notice this, this language of repentance. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your heart and not just your garments. Don't just rip your clothes. I want you to rip your hearts. I want you to have a truly broken heart. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. That's straight from Exodus chapter 34, right? Uh, Moses is uh, God's description of himself to Moses. Common theme of the Old Testament. Verse 14, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Basically, he's commanding that they call this this, this all-nation meeting, uh, calling the nation to repentance. Blow the trumpet, right? And, and, and call a, a fast and, and, and get the old people. You can't say, well, I'm just too old. I can't. No, your age is no excuse. And let's get all the kids, even the babies, the nursing infants need to come and be a part of this. And guess what? If you're on your honeymoon, cancel it. Come back and repent. That's what he's saying, right? The bride out of her bridal chamber, the bridegroom come out of his room. In other words, you're on your honeymoon, this takes precedence over that. That's how important it is for you to come and repent. Let the priests, verse 17, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, where is their God? In other words, he's imploring the priest to get on their face and cry out to God to have mercy on his people. And, and appeal to him and say, Lord, why would we become a byword to the nations? And, and why would you do something to us that would cause the nations to reproach you, right? And to mock you and say, where is their God? And so in light of this impending invasion, he's, he's pleading with them to repent. And, and he appealed to them based on God's character, right? That, hey, in return to God, why? Because he's gracious, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in loving kindness, he's relenting of evil. In other words, if, 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 you, resp- if you respond to my invitation to repent, God's discipline can be avoided. He'll deal with you graciously and and lovingly. And then we make this transition from the devastation in the first half of Joel to the deliverance in the second half of Joel. Notice the change of tone here. Again, how is the Lord going to respond to your repentance when you come to him with your sin and you repent, right? He's going to deal graciously with your sin. Verse 18, then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you'll be satisfied and full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove the northern army far from you and I will drive it into a parched land and desolate land and its vanguard into the eastern sea and its rear guard into the western sea and its stench will arise and its foul smell will come up for it has done great things. 
Do not fear, O land, rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, for the tree has borne its fruit, the fig tree and the vine have yielded it in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication. He's poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Then I will make Up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. Again, notice the sovereignty of God. He sent the locust. It wasn't just some random act of Mother Nature. Verse 26, you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other and my people will never be put to shame. So basically God's saying, I'm going to restore you. You repent and I'll restore you. And I will, I will restore your land. All that the, 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 the locusts have, have, uh, have destroyed, right? I will, I will replenish your land. Everything will grow back. And, 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 and I'll send that enemy who was breathing down your neck, I'll send them running, right? Uh, I'll deal with them. I'm, I'm assuming you're familiar with that expression, Joel 2, verse 25, then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, right? You've, you've heard that expression, right, that God restores the years that locusts have eaten. Well, before we apply that to ourselves, we need to make sure we understand that literally speaking here, this is a reference to God restoring and replenishing the land destroyed by the locusts. That's what that's talking about. Do you agree with me? That's what that means literally, right? But I do think that there's a principle here that we can apply to our lives, a general principle. And James Montgomery Boyce says it well. He says, we cannot undo what is done. Sin is sin. And the effects of sin often continue for long periods, but God can restore what the locusts have eaten. God can break the power of sin and restore a personal holiness and joy that would not have been dreamed possible in the rebellion. I think this is a very comforting verse for for some of you maybe that lived uh, for years in some kind of sin, even either before you were saved uh, or, or even while you were saved, right? And, and God brought you a place to a place of repentance. But before that happened, I mean, you destroyed your life. You destroyed a lot of relationships. You destroyed a lot of things, right? And, and guess what? By the grace of God, right, because of his love and his mercy, he will deal kindly with you and, and he can restore all that stuff. Isn't that good news? He can restore all that stuff. He can help you rebuild back those relationships and cover that sin. Well, now we come to one of the greatest promises of hope in all the Old Testament. This is a familiar passage, I'm sure, uh, if you know your your New Testament. Uh, Notice verse 28, it will come about after after this, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes." 
And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now, the reason why that passage might sound familiar to you, because it's quoted in the New Testament. Remember who quoted it? Peter, in his first sermon he ever preached in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, he quotes that entire text that I just read. Uh, back in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 2, you remember the, the Spirit of God came at Pentecost and, and, and the, all the people there in the upper room were speaking in tongues and that wasn't some crazy gibberish, uh, but it was, they, were, they, they were given the ability to speak in other languages. And so everyone around them from all over the world who had gone to Jerusalem, had been in Jerusalem for the Passover, were, was hearing the gospel in their own language. And they're like, how is this happening? And somebody said, well, ah, they're just drunk. And so Peter said, oh, no, we're not. Let me tell you what's going on here. And he, he says, Acts chapter 2, verse 14, Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. Why would we be drunk by then? But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And then he goes and he quotes this passage about in the last days, God will pour forth his spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and and, and dream dreams. And he goes on and talks about how he will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, this is where Bible students uh, will disagree at times about what was going on here. Apparently, Peter was saying this was the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy uh, in chapter 2, verse 28 through 32. Um, Was this a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy? Absolutely. Was this the full, total, complete fulfillment of Joel's prophecy? Absolutely not, right? So you kind of got a both end going on here that, that this was part, Joel's prophecy was partially fulfilled on the day of Pentecost um, in the fact that the Spirit of God came. But this, the first half came true, was fulfilled, but the second half, none of those things happened, right? There wasn't wonders in the sky above. There, there wasn't blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun wasn't turned to darkness. The moon didn't turn blood red, right? None of that stuff happened. And so what does that tell us? That, 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 that there was a partial fulfillment here on the day of Pentecost, but ultimately uh, this passage will be fulfilled when? At the second coming, right? Um, because these things haven't been fulfilled yet. So there is a, a principle when you're interpreting scripture and particularly prophetic literature, uh, and that is that near and far fulfillment. You have to keep that in mind that oftentimes when there was an Old Testament prophecy of something that was going to happen in the future in the New Testament, you see part of it fulfilled in the first coming of Christ, but there were some things that 
weren't fulfilled that uh, remain to be fulfilled, and that's going to happen in, in Christ's second coming. And when the prophets were, were saying these things, they could not envision that there was going to be this gap, right? All they knew was that there was the, the coming of the Messiah, where the Spirit of God would be poured out. That's all they could see, right? From their vantage point, they just saw this one event that was going to take place, but they didn't realize that there was going to be a gap between the Messiah's first coming and his second coming. And so this is what happens, right? You're, you're there and you look and say, wow, look at this prophecy. It's like you're looking at this mountain and go, wow, that's awesome. And so you start climbing up that mountain and you come to the peak of that mountain and you go, there's another mountain out there. <laughs> I didn't know there was a second mountain out there. This is like a mountain range, right, with these fulfillments that are going to go on uh, into the future. I can't pass over this one uh, comment here. It's mentioned here in, in Acts 2, also back in Joel 2, where it says there, uh, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. In other words, these are some of the signs to look for uh, before Jesus comes back. And I think you're probably aware that there's a very popular book out there right now called Four Blood Moons by John Hagee, a pastor in San Antonio. And it's been on like the top Amazon.com list of books, and he's on Fox News and getting interviewed all about this stuff, and, and uh, a lot of Christians are getting excited about this four blood moon concept, and it's, it's kind of a complicated deal that there's going to be four lunar eclipses or, you know, over the next two years, and, and, and some man uh, who John Hagee knows and, and has read about uh, kind of has went to NASA and saw these things happening and then went back into Jewish history and saw that these, these, uh, these things, uh, these, you know, there's only been a certain number of times that this has happened in history and, and, and every time it happens, something big happens in Israel and, and so they've kind of made this big thing about, guess what? In the next two years, we're going to have this, these four lunar eclipses and so something's big's going to happen in Israel. Well, I can tell you this, I think something big's going to happen in Israel but it has nothing to do with these four lunar eclipses, right, the, where the moon turns red, right, or looks red. And, in fact, I was doing some research. It's, it's, uh, in the providence of God, somebody on Sunday morning came up to me and said, hey, uh, I, I got the copy of the four blood, four blood moons. What do you think about that? And I said, you know what? Let me look into it, and I'll get back to you. And I really appreciated the opportunity to comment on, on this person was asking what I thought about it. And so I went online and I did find plenty of critique on the Four Bloods Moons and why it's a waste of time. Do not read that book. It's not worth your time. It's been debunked by prophecy experts, people that are way smarter than me or I'll ever be when it comes to biblical prophecy. And there's a, you just go online and look up Four Blood Moons Critique and you'll see uh, Tim Challies does a, does a really good um, uh, review of the book and says, don't waste your time and don't read it. Um, uh, the, the answers in Genesis uh, go through this whole thing and explain why uh, really that whole theory is, 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 is not true. And then there's one guy that does a little YouTube video that's very, very good, about 12 minutes. I almost thought about showing it tonight because he does such a good job of just, of just saying, hey, listen, let me show you why this four blood moon stuff is not true. Um, and he kind of exposes how, um, how these guys are kind of off base. And so basically what it is, it's just one more, hey, let's try to figure out when Jesus is coming back book, right? And, uh, and, and what, is, what does the Bible say? We don't know when he's coming back, right? But just be ready all the time. 
And as people try to read into prophecy, they misinterpret Scripture, they twist Scripture, they do all these things to kind of get us all excited and worked up. Well, it's not necessary. Let's finish here with chapter 3 real quickly here. Um, Here, this entire chapter now focuses on the ultimate fulfillment, the the part that wasn't fulfilled uh, at the day of Pentecost in Christ's first coming. And, and really, this entire chapter focuses on the last great battle when Christ will return from heaven to destroy his enemies and restore his people Israel and, and, and set up his messianic kingdom in, in Jerusalem. Notice, he says, For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the forts of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? But if I do recompense, but if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my precious treasures to your temples and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory. Behold, I'm going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. Also, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the sons of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabians, to, to a distant nation for the Lord has spoken. So you see he's, he's, he's taken on the nations who have used and abused Israel, his people. And he's saying, you're going to pay. I'm coming back to take vengeance on you because of the way that you uh, came against Israel. And, and I just think anytime you do see stuff going down in Israel and the nations around them picking on Israel, I'm like, you better watch out. You're messing with God's people, and, and, and you're making God mad, okay? And, and he could come, I'm like, bring it on, because the more you beat up on Israel, the sooner he's coming back, right, uh, to, to, uh, to, to defend his people. Notice verse 9, proclaim this among the nations, prepare a war, rouse the mighty men, let all the soldiers draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears, let the weak say, I'm a mighty man, hasten and come all you surrounding nations and gather yourselves there, bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones, let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe, come tread for the winepresses full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision, the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness, the the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble, for the Lord, but the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel, then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, so Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. The day of of enemy nations just running running back and forth through Israel and doing whatever they want and taking whatever they want, right? That was pretty much Israel's history. That's not going to happen anymore. Someone said this, the, the battle, the, the ensuing battle, I'll just call it the Battle of Armageddon, that's what we're talking about here, right? The final great battle will be a dramatic expression of God's love for Israel and his animosity to those who've despised her. 
And notice it says, you say, well, I thought it was the Valley of Armageddon. What's this Valley of Jehoshaphat? Well, Valley of Jehoshaphat is not necessarily a literal valley. It simply means the Valley of Jehovah's Judgment. That's what Jehoshaphat means, uh, Jehovah's Judgment. Um, it's also referred to as, in verse 14, the Valley of Decision. And, and you've heard this, I've even said it, that, hey, you're all sitting here tonight in the Valley of Decision. You need to make a decision. This is not our decision. This is God's decision. This is God's decision to judge his enemies. This is, could be equated with the sheep and goat judgment of Matthew 25 or the, the great white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20. This, this is when, when God will judge the nations and will judge all men. And then notice in verse 18, and in that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and springs will go out from the house of the Lord to the water of the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste and Edom will become desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in those in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem for all generations and I will avenge their blood which I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. I love that. He returns the promised land to the land of milk and honey, right? Every promise to Israel will be fulfilled when the nation is eventually established in their own land again, right? During the millennial kingdom. I think that's the best way to understand uh, what's going on here. Now, granted, the exact sequence uh, uh, and timing of all these events is debated among theologians and Bible teachers, but we can be certain of one thing, and that is Jesus is coming back, and we need to be ready. When you think about the day of the Lord, that's all about Jesus coming back. That's just another way of saying the return of Christ. And so the question is, are you ready? Can we get practical now? Okay, who cares about the book of Joel? Well, how about this? Are you ready for the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is coming when he will judge mankind in such a devastating way that it will make the locusts and the tsunamis seem like minor inconveniences. Look at, look at 2 Peter, and just we'll look at this as we close. 2 Peter Chapter 3, this is how Peter describes the coming day of the Lord. He uses the, that same expression, the day of the Lord. Now, let's look at it from a New Testament perspective. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, and all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. In other words, people are going to be, yeah, yeah, Jesus is coming back. Yeah, right. How many times, how long have they been saying that and it hasn't happened yet? I don't think so. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. But by his word, and pres the, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. What did God promise after the flood? That he would never destroy the world again by Water. Didn't say anything about fire. 
Verse 8, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. You think, oh, it's just been so long. And yeah, if these people are making this stuff up, it's never going to happen. Well, listen, your timetable and God's timetable are totally different. And what you think is a long time is just one day to the Lord, right? Right? We say, well, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus promised all this stuff and it hasn't happened yet. Well, According to this, that's just been two days in God's economy, right? 2,000 years, 1,000 years equals a day. So it's just been, just been a couple days. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to what? Repent. Why is he waiting so long? Because he wants you to repent. That's why he's waiting so long. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief not going to come with, oh, I just saw four blood moons and Jesus is coming back. I know he's coming because I saw the sun. No, listen, it's going to come like a thief. It's going to come when you, do- when does the thief come? You don't know when he's coming. He, he, he sneaks in. He just shows up, right? And he, he surprises you. That's what a thief does. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with an intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking For new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. In other words, it's a good thing that Jesus hasn't come back yet because it gives more time for people to what? To repent and come to salvation. And what does Joel say? Joel chapter 2, verse 32, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered, will be saved. Does that sound familiar? Paul, Romans chapter 10, verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so depending on who you are tonight and what your relationship is with God, listen, the day of the Lord is either something that you're dreading or it's something that you're looking forward to with great anticipation. And for unbelievers, the day of the Lord is going to be the worst day of their life. But for us who are believers, it's going to be the greatest day, right, of our lives. And it all depends on on if you believe. And so, listen, I I just want to be like Joel tonight, okay, and plead with you to repent and follow Christ. Turn to God through faith in his son who lived and died in your place. And guess what? You've got nothing to fear in the coming day of the Lord. You can look forward to that day with confidence and hope, knowing that your sin has been paid for, right? That God already judged Jesus in your place on the cross. And so instead of a day of judgment, it's a day of what? Blessing. A day of rejoicing. And, 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 and listen, you know, once you get past the fact that you're saved, and I was just talking to somebody who might be here, I don't know who's here tonight, right? You may not be saved, and that's what you needed to hear. You needed to hear repent and believe, right? 
So you can look forward to the day of the Lord. But how about us as, as Christians, right? I mean, the Old Testament was written, it says, for our instruction. And, and it's easy to look down on Israel and go, man, these guys, they were knuckleheads, man. What's their problem? You know, God was so good to them. He rescued him from Egypt and he gave him the promised land. And he said, hey, if you obey me, I'll bless you. And if you disobey me, I'll curse you. And, and, and then they went off and disobeyed him. And if you sit in judgment on the nation of Israel, you don't understand your own heart. Because that Israel is us. Right? This is, this is the repeated cycle of our lives. The Lord blesses, He, he delivers us, and he, he blesses us, right? And then what do we do? We, re, we sin. We go off and do our own thing. And, and then we, what do we do? We repent. He, he, he disciplines us, and He draws us back to Himself. And then once we repent, He blesses us. And then what do we do? We go back into sin, and then we, he, he goes out after us. He disciplines us, right? He spanks us, and then he, we come on back, and He blesses us. And what, this is the cycle. And so we, we need to remember here that, yes, not all calamity, not all adversity, not all trials are a result of God's judgment. You shouldn't automatically think, this is happening to me because God is judging me, right? Whenever anything bad happens, like, oh, no, God's judging me. Not necessarily, right? We all suffer as a result of, uh, of, of living in a sinful world and, and maybe even sometimes because of other sinful choices, we're suffering not because of our own sin, but someone else's sin. So I don't want you to think that every time you suffer, every time you go through a hard time in your life, that God's judging, God's disciplining you for something you did bad. But, but, beloved, there are times when God does bring hardship in our lives to discipline us for our sin and to get us to repent. Amen? There are times he does that. He sovereignly brought the locusts, right, into the lives of the, of, of the Judeans, of the nation of Judah. And there are times when God brings locust-like challenges and trials into our lives, potentially, right, to discipline us for our sin. And so maybe, I mean, whatever the cause of the adversity, it's always a good opportunity to examine your life and examine your relationship with the Lord and say, maybe why is this happening, Right? And, and, and just recently, there, there was a situation that, that, that we've been going through, uh, Kelly and I, and, and, and uh, I just started thinking, you know, uh, had something to do with our kids. And, and I started thinking, you know, this isn't about my kids, this is about me. And, and God's dealing with me, right? Uh, and, and, and God's been exposing sin in my life and showing me areas that I need to change and I need to grow, Right? And so God's using a difficult situation with our children to, to expose my sin and to help me deal with my sin. And so maybe, maybe there's some sin that you need to repent of tonight because God's hand is heavy upon you, right? And he's disciplining you right now. C.S. Lewis, you remember this, the problem of pain? God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Maybe God's shouting to you right now through some kind of painful situation in your life and he's wanting to get your attention. And so uh, this would be a, a good time to just evaluate and say, Lord, um, you, you've given me great hope tonight that even though I'm a, a, a great sinner who, who's, who's walked away from you time and time again, I know that you're gracious and you're compassionate and you're loving and that when I repent, you will restore. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you.
that even though we often unplug ourselves from you through our unfaithfulness, and uh, we know that when that happens, it doesn't take very long for our lives to get awfully dark. When we disconnect from you, it's like the lights go out and bad things start happening. And when we sin, we choose to suffer. And Lord, we get all that. And, and Lord, tonight we just are so grateful for the hope of this, of this little book called Joel. Lord, that you promise that even when we stray from you and you discipline us, if we repent, uh, you will forgive us and you'll restore us. And ultimately, you will save us, Lord, and we will be on the winning team in the end. And we look forward to that day. And Lord, I pray that there would be no one in here tonight who, who in any ways are dreading the day of the Lord, but they're looking forward to the day of the Lord. Because uh, it's your day. It's, 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 it's the time you get your day or you get to shine and your glory uh, will be put on display in, in, in amazing ways. And so, Lord, we look forward to that day and I pray that you would just continue to help us live holy and pure lives and uh, to reach out to lost people around us and, and help them to see that the fact that God hasn't returned yet is, is ultimately so that they would repent and they would be, have time to be saved. And so, Lord, help us to apply this message to our lives with the help of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.